Warning, the following podcast, which contains strong language and mature content, is unsuitable for children or for the faint of heart. The subject matter discussed will be frightening and graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey spooksters and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara and as always I am here with my girlfriend Jessica. Hello! Hello. I almost skipped introducing you and just went into this is what we're talking about today. I don't know oh, why. So I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do this a lot, guys. <laughs> you don't know, like, most of the time we correct it with editing, but like a lot of times yeah. I just fucking forget to introduce Tara. It's fine. I, I, I'm I, just here. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> But also, precursor, before somebody new turns this off, I yes, I'm nasally and congested because I am probably sick at the moment, so ignore that. But anyways, so today we are going to be talking about the Hoover murders or Hoover family murders. But before we get into that, if you are new here, thank you for checking out the show. Returning Spooksters, welcome back. We love you all so, so very much. We hope that the holiday season is treating you all well. Since we are now in December, which is fucking crazy. It was just January, I swear to God. Literally, this year fucking flew by for reals. But if you are not and you would like to hang out with us on social medias, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is at Three Spooked Girls. And we also have an amazing Facebook group that all kinds of fun stuff happens in. We got book club. We do gift exchanges every so often. A lot of announcements before they air here on the pod. We usually drop them over there. So it's kind of like an exclusive little spookster area. But it's like, all you got to do is just join. There's there's nothing. It's free. It's Facebook. It's just Facebook. <laughs> it's just Facebook, you know. And that is three. Yeah. And that is three spooked girls official. And if you would like to hang out this on TikTok, you can find our links in the show notes. I have a link tree. I am spooky underscore sleuth. And Jessica is spooky aunt Jesse. Yeah, so hang out with us over there. And if you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com backslash three spooked girls for as little as a dollar. You get one bonus episode a month. We also did change our tiers. So now we have one, five, and 10, I think is what we're, we're obviously recording ahead of time. So my brain, please excuse us. It's late at night too. But we do have a couple different tiers. We have video content, ad-free episodes, and all kinds of great stuff. So definitely check it out. Oh, and we have the Spookster shop where I do tarot readings. Jessica has blind date books that she mails out to you guys. And sometimes we have some other goodies. So definitely check it out. It, it's, it's a thing. 
Right now, it's kind of a little quiet just because holidays and all of that stuff, but there will be more coming. So definitely check that out. Hey there, Spooksters. It's Jessica. And do I have a suggestion for you? Crimeaholics is a true crime podcast that debuted in February of 2020. Their scripted episodes range from 15 to 45 minutes, making it a great podcast for you to listen to on your morning commute or just a quick trip to the store. Hosted by Holly and Kenzie, who take turns each week to bring you two episodes. Because their episodes are single hosted, there's no banter or chit chat, just straight to the facts. Crimeaholics are most known for their coverage on The Missing, with their weekly Monday episode called Missing Mondays. Missing Mondays has drawn national attention to their podcast. They have been featured in Women's Magazine in South Dakota. They were praised for their exclusive month-long coverage on the missing and murdered Indigenous women movement. They've also worked with and interviewed private investigators, law enforcement, survivors of abuse, Columbine shooting survivor Casey Johnson, Jody Aris's defense attorney, and so many more. They also work closely with families of the victims to bring awareness to their stories, especially the lesser-known cases. You can check them out on Instagram and TikTok at Crimeaholics Podcast. But I am going to go ahead and hand it over to Jessica so we can get this case started. Okay. So I just want to like say that there isn't like a ton known about this, about the people in this case right. prior to kind of the murder, which is surprising right. because it happened in 2002, which is like... Mm-hmm. It was 20 years ago, but like, you know. It's still recent enough that it's like, there should be more, which is sad for the memory of the victims. Right. You know? Right. I would rather find like stuff about the victims. And I'm sure yeah, if we had had weeks and weeks and weeks, we could have probably found something. But like, the internet was just not as forgiving or as giving this time, I should say. So we're going to be talking about the Hulaver family, which there are four, five, there's technically five of them that will come into play. So we have, mm-hmm. well, there's more, but they're okay. So Ernest Hulaver Jr., who was about 42 years old at this time, mm-hmm. was married or kind of his marriage to his wife, Jean, was ending. So they were, they were having, they were definitely having some problems. They were they were having some problems and their 20-year marriage was getting ready to end. And mind you, this is Christmas time, so it's probably a little harder, it's a little darker than like their normal thing. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned earlier, not a lot is known about the family, a lot of details, which I guess could be in a way like respectful to the to the deceased. Mm-hmm. But one thing we do know is that Ernest was not the most stable of men. In fact, Mm -mm. in July of 2002, according to a case filed at the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, Ernest had been formally charged with sexual offenses that were laid against him for allegations involving his two daughters, Victoria Mm -hmm. and Elizabeth. And Elizabeth has the nickname she goes by, like, Izzy. So Mm -hmm. if I refer to her as Izzy. Mm -hmm. So according to the case, he had had some sexual misconduct with his daughters and it was actually like a, it was kind of a big deal. According to their daughter, Victoria, she had kept the secret for a lot of years. Ernest had been like molesting her and she didn't want to like bring attention to it because she thought if she 
told somebody, he'd stop with her and move on to Izzy. Which, mm. you know, like, is is heartbreaking. And also, it's heartbreaking Then you're like, oh my god, what a wonderful big sister. Like, the fact that, like, she yeah. would sacrifice herself for her younger sister. But essentially, Victoria was having a conversation with her aunt, and it came out that it was happening to Izzy as well. And the aunt then encouraged her and or Victoria and Izzy to go to the police and they which is great they did they they went into mm-hmm. that and because Elizabeth was 15 Jean was able to go and obtain a protection from abuse act so basically she got a restraining order against him yeah. so that he couldn't come into the home so in July he was arrested and he made bail <laughs> yeah fucking joke of a bail oh yeah it was like i want to say like a hundred thousand dollars yep it was a hundred thousand dollars so yeah like tara like we said it's a hundred thousand dollar bail it's like nothing so when gene got the protective order he actually had to move they were living in middleton pennsylvania mm-hmm. he actually had to leave their home and he had to leave any of their firearm any of his firearms he couldn't take anything with him mm-hmm so then he went and moved with his mother, father, and younger brother, and I believe it's pronounced Cambrea, which is three hours away. Mm-hmm. Which, can we just take a minute to acknowledge that once Jean found out, she literally sprung into action to do what the fuck she needed to do for her kids. Instantly. Yeah. Just yeah, saying. It was, it was like she found out and was like, the fuck? And then, you know, did it. Just so that everyone knows, Victoria is actually 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And she also, so in December, she had a nine month old. So in July, she would have had a four month old. Yeah, something like that. Five months. So that could also five. be another reason why mm-hmm. there may have been more urgency around because her, she had a daughter. So, you know, like maybe there was like, okay, I need to kind of like talk this out. And then she found out how it was happening with her sister. And so she was like, okay. Yeah. Now, obviously, this happens. Ernest has been kicked out. Jean starts talking about she's going to file for divorce. But I don't think she had quite gotten to that point yet. Like, I don't think she had done it yet. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I get it. Like, you might need just the dust to settle. Like, you've got to kind of, like, heal or whatnot. I understand. Not wanting to jump right into that. So, Ernest is living with his mother and his brother and his father. And about three, three, three and a half hours away from Jean and the girls. And on December 24th, 2002, Jean and her daughters were supposed to drive two and a half hours away to Jonestown, Pennsylvania to go see her parents, Jean's parents, Joe and Mary Bittman. And when they didn't show up that evening, because it was like this big tradition, they would drive out to the Bittmans and have Christmas Eve dinner, and then they'd stay over and they'd always have Christmas morning there. So when they didn't show up, Mary got really concerned. And right. she started call she called the house. There was no answer. So she just kept trying to figure it out. And she did the best thing that you could possibly do, which is that she called for a welfare check. Because, you know, if family was sick and they couldn't get to the phone. The police officer would just be like, hey, they're sick. Mm -hmm. But also, like, you should probably know if they're home or not, because what if they had gotten on an accident in the road, 
you would need kind of to know before you sent yeah. people out looking. Yeah. So by the time they could get someone out there, it was. Oh, seven- can can we talk about that for a second, though? Yeah. Yeah. Her mom, they called on Christmas Eve and they got told, call back the next morning. That's mm-hmm. why it took so long. Right. It's the holiday. Call tomorrow. It's probably just traffic. Are you fucking serious right now? That dispatcher? Goodbye. Yeah. I bet that dispatcher, you know. Got fired. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I don't get no, it. No, there's, there's no there's no getting it. Yeah, because it's like, it's one of those things where like, you'd rather be safe than sorry. And I understand that sometimes the police force is limited, but at some point in time in that evening, because I have a feeling like they, she wasn't calling at one in the morning, like my daughter hasn't arrived. She was probably right. calling at like nine o'clock at night. Yeah. Hey, my daughter has yet to come to my house. Can you please? Yeah. So Mary did call back the next day and Mm -hmm. they dispatched someone out to the house. And at 7 a.m., Sergeant Robert Glivler, let me go with that, Glivler, he came to the house and he said he pulled up to the front of the house and nothing looked out of the ordinary. Everything looked normal. It was like Christmas morning. And he knocked Mm -hmm. on the door. No answer. He rings the doorbell. Still no answer. So he looks through the window and he can't really see anything inside. So he's like, you know, it's 7 a.m. Like if they were home, they could be asleep. Right. I don't know about you, but like depending on your house, you might not hear the door being knocked on. Yeah. You know, sometimes doorbells are weird on the inside. You can't hear them everywhere. Mm hmm. So then the officer goes around to the back of the house and he notices that one of the garage door windows is broken. So he goes into the he goes into the garage and he notices that the car is still there and he's like, "Okay, something's weird cuz their car is here but they're not answering, the window's broken. This is starting to be suspicious." So he goes and he knocks on the door to the house. Gosh, yeah. And this is literally what it says. It says, "It falls open." Right. How creepy. I'm assuming it just fell over. No, 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 no. Like, it just, like, opened. Like, it wasn't shut or locked or anything. Oh, just see, like when I hear the words fall open, I feel like the door was, like, kicked off the hinges and then put back up and someone knocked and then it falls open. Like, that's how I pictured oh, it. Oh, yeah, no. When I was looking at it, it was saying, you know, it opened when he went to, like, knock on it. It just, bloop, open. Yeah. I don't know. I guess we have two very different images of that, so. <laughs> <laughs> we do. Whatever. Either way, the yes. point is the door fucking was open. <laughs> yeah, it was unlocked. Yeah. And was easily accessed. Let's put that way. Yeah. He says that he, like, does the right thing, which is announced that he's there. Because, you know, mm-hmm. again, like, what if there'd just been an accident that had happened and now he's startling people? You don't want yeah. that. So he announces himself and there's no response. And he, like, walks through the hallway and he comes into the kitchen and he finds a woman lying on the ground and he reaches down and he touches her and he describes her as cold to the touch. So then he's like, okay, I got to get more people here. He calls for backup. They start going through the house to like, see what's happening. And I obviously called a homicide detective because you know, there was a homicide because she was not lying on the ground since trauma. She had been shot. Yeah. So they go through the first floor. And then at this point in time, 
they're starting to go upstairs because they hear a noise. And they go upstairs and they find Victoria and she's holding her baby. Yeah. Yeah. The baby was the one who was crying. Yeah. Which was making the noise. So then Officer Glivers, he starts going through the rest of the house. They take the baby outside. The baby's name was Madison. She was like extremely dehydrated because at this point, she's been in the house. They'll discover later 30 hours without an adult. Mm-hmm. Super, I mean, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Then they actually like keep looking and they find this is when they find Izzy's Izzy. body. Yeah. Essentially like in her bedroom. Yeah. It says that all three women had been shot in the head with a singular shot with a small caliber weapon. And since Jean was found in the kitchen, like, she was making her coffee. And so, literally, like, the coffee filter had fallen into, like, the trash can that was right there. Mm -hmm. When they start, like, looking around, they realize that they believe this had happened about 4 Mm a.m. It says that Victoria was shot in the top of the head. And they think this is because, like, she was trying to protect her baby. Yeah. Izzy was shot. Well, she was laying across her bed and she was shot with a single gunshot through her left eye. And they say it was shot close up. So like at close range, mm-hmm. there were burn marks around under her eye. Which means it had to be like really fucking close. I don't know how f- close, but I'm thinking within like an inch. Yeah, that's what I would think too. Yeah. My o- only hope is that like she was asleep. She wasn't. Because they also found oh, yeah, the she same burn the marks on her. Yeah. Yep, on her hand. So she was trying to stop this person. So when they're like out and investigating the house and everything, they notice uh-huh. that there's been like wires cut. So they're like, okay, so like mm-hmm. the telephone wire, any kind of like any way for them to communicate outwardly had been like basically disabled. Right. Which also would be one of the reasons why, even if the phone was ringing at the house, like, it wouldn't go through. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, because there's been, like, this court case, files charged against Ernest, Mm -hmm. they're going to have to go talk to him. Because an estranged loved one or an estranged spouse is always kind of the first, Mm -hmm. is the first suspect. So they go and they, they drive the three hours to go see him and they bring him and his brother, Scott, into the police station. Mm-hmm. Ernest says at this point he's heard about the murders from, like, a family member, but he doesn't know who did it. And his alibi is Scott. And they said they mm-hmm. were out spotting deer and coyote in the local mountains. Whatever the fuck that means. Prepping traps or bait? I don't know. I don't know. You do that with, like, bears, I think, where they, like set up shit bear barrels or something i don't know what spotting is and i didn't care to learn oh no i'm just like making stuff up right now (laughs) tara's like i know all about hunting it's no i don't (laughs) (laughs) no my my jam not my jam jam. (laughs) they said they were out there from like 2 a.m to about 9 in the morning and then basically scott is my alibi is earnest which is kind of not an alibi Like, let's be real. Yeah. So another person became a suspect or a person of interest would be Frankie Ramos, 
who was Madison's father, because apparently the relationship with Victoria and him wasn't great. Mm -mm. But apparently Frankie didn't even really believe that Madison was his kid until there was a paternity test. So that might be why. And then he actually had like a solid alibi. Yeah. He was about an hour and a half away from Middleton when it was happening. Which, granted, Ernest said he was three hours away, so. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Another potential was a guy by the name of Turner Higgins. He, I guess, he and Victoria were, like, on and off again. And mm-hmm. they thought he was, they thought he might be because apparently when they kicked out Ernest, he came and changed the locks to the house because he was a locksmith. Mm-hmm. But that to me, I was like, that's kind of a stretch because the person who entered the house obviously broke that window to like get into the house. Right. If it was Turner, wouldn't he just be like, oh, I have the fucking key because I made this. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. But he also had an alibi and was mm-hmm. quickly cleared. Well, and the thing with Turner, too, is Turner is the it was like a love triangle between Frankie, Turner and Victoria or she'll go by Vicky. Mm-hmm. So we don't know, but apparently there was conversations between Vicky and Turner that Turner, until that paternity test that Frankie took, he thought he was Madison's dad. That's sad. Yeah. So they were like, well, maybe, you know, because there's like two arguments with why they would keep looking at him. One was, well, if he thought that was really his daughter, like, why would he, you know, why wouldn't he just like kidnap the baby, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then on the other side, it's like, well, that's why he would leave the baby alive. That's true. Because maybe he got upset. You know, that was like a theory. They were like, maybe he got upset. And then just Gene and Izzy were kind of like, it was because they were there, you know? Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. But obviously none of that is what, what the truth is. So, no. yeah. No. Yeah. And I feel like there's better ways to kill the potential, your potential baby mama than to kill her whole family. So at this point in time, the detectives are like, okay, I have to go back and look at the immediate family, which is Ernest. And we know that Ernest was riding around with Scott in Scott's vehicle. So they were going to go and like look at it. Apparently, in like his trunk of his car or whatever he had, there was a notebook in there. And in the notebook, in Scott's handwriting, is the note, we're out spotting deers and coyotes. In the notebook, which is fucking suspect. Mm-hmm. This is our plan. Interestingly enough, when they bring Ernest back in, he asserts his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent until he gets an attorney. So the only person they can really kind of put pressure on is Scott. And they could kind of start telling that Scott's alibi seemed rehearsed. So like, okay. Mm-hmm. We're going to do like the detective e things. We're going to show him pictures of the crime scene. This is his sis. I mean, this is a woman he's known for 20 years, right? Right, exactly. And then two of his nieces, right? And I guess when he sees them, he breaks down and is like, fuck, I got to tell you the truth. And he tells police that Ernest basically asked him early morning of December 24th, 2002, right after midnight, to drive to Middleton. So they'd been drinking, and for some reason they thought this was a good idea, and they do that, and Scott drives him, even though, like, Ernest isn't supposed to go anywhere near Middleton because it's an instant bail violation for him. Mm -hmm. They say they arrived close to 4 a.m., 
And Ernest tells them to like park down the street, Mm -hmm. stay in the car. I'll be right back. I'm just going to go get, you know, he's like, I'm just going to be gone. He gets something from the backseat of the car and then goes towards the house. Mm -hmm. Scott said he's only gone for 10 minutes. Yep. He then tells Scott to like drive back to their home. That's three hours away. But not to go home, but they need to go a little further to like this wood area. Mm -hmm. And apparently like Ernest was irritated. He was agitated. And like when he came back to the car, so he was like real kind of fucking grumpy. At some point, Ernest, when they go into the woods, gets out of the car with the pistol and a shotgun. And then when he gets comes back to the car, he has neither. So, like, yeah, they did go into the woods. Scott then takes the police to where the guns were dropped off. The police find it. I guess they had, like, some trouble, but then they found it. Because, you know, apparently Ernest didn't keep good care, didn't take good care of his guns. And there was, like, rust on the barrel. So they were like, oh, look, that's a discolor- discoloration. And then they, when they looked at the serial numbers, they belonged to, like, Ernest's uncle, like, his mom's brother. And then when they ran ballistics, they realized it matched the murder weapon. So now I'm going to hand it to Tara and she's going to tell you the rest of the story. Yeah, I am going to back us up a little bit, though, to kind of talk about that night just a little bit, just to kind of like give you context, because it's like there were multiple times that Scott could have been like, no, or fucking go to the cops. (laughs) Right. Not just fucking do what he did. Okay. So, like Jess said, they they had discussed, technically it was, like, super late into the 23rd, going into midnight, into Christmas Eve. And they were literally at a bar for, like, hours. And so they were drinking. So, yes, Scott drank and drove, drove and drank, drove drunk. There you go. Drove under the influence. Whatever you want. Fucking three, what is it, three hours? Is that what you said? Yeah. Three hours? Yeah, fucking long fucking drive. You shouldn't drive under the influence at all, but, like... Three fucking hours, first of all. I kept thinking, like, at some point, you're going to start sobering up. Mm-hmm. And later it come out, they did confirm, they did get surveillance footage of the two stopping at a gas station along the way. So this did help in court later on. And like Jess said, you know, they got to the house at 4 a.m. Jean worked an early shift, so it was confirmed that, you know, she was up making coffee. Hang on a second. But what is like so sketchy about this was not only like was he convincing Scott to go to the house, but he was using the excuse of the family dog. He's like, I want to go get my dog. I want my dog. I'll go early and blah, 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 which it's like bad idea all around. And that's a very like loose thing. Right. And homie, when they pulled over down the road, he put on dark clothes, a hunting mask, two pairs of gloves and then took all those guns. To get his dog. To go get a dog. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then when he came out, no dog. Yeah, that's the one thing about it that doesn't track. No. How is Scott, like, in the car being like, where's the dog? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then, like Jess mentioned earlier, everything that the police found with the phone lines cut and then, you know, the broken window, et cetera, et cetera. That is what he did and went in there when he did kill his soon-to-be ex-wife and two children. When Ernest came out, you know, he was he seemed, quote, strung out and nervous and yelled at him like, drive, drive, drive. And then that's when they left. Blah, blah, blah. So, you know, 
Then they did the Woods thing. All of that shit. Right? Right. Well, when Scott is spilling all this tea and going with them to the woods and all of that, they do strike up a deal for him telling this. And basically, it was that he had to agree to testify in court because obviously he's going to become the star witness. Duh. But he would have to plead guilty to first degree murder and some burglary charges since he was the one driving and knew what was going on, essentially. And basically, for Scott's defense, they went in trying to say that Scott only did this because Ernest was verbally abusive to Scott, that after he left the family home, he was very angry all the time. He was very aggressive, things like that. So kind of like a like he didn't have a choice type of thing is what the defense was trying to say about Scott. Well, long story short, he was given 25 years with the possibility of parole after 12. I didn't see anything updated from that, so I'm not quite sure if Scott is still in prison or not, but that was what ended up happening with his stuff. But yeah, there there's not really any updates, and even right now during recording, just tried to look it up, and we really did not see if I missed anything, and there really wasn't anything, so probably still in jail, I would assume, but I digress. So with Ernest's trial, they actually had put in to move it to a different county because this got a lot of media attention. So essentially, his defense team was like, there's no way he's going to get a fair jury. If we do this here in his hometown, we need to do this somewhere else. But during this trial, they did decide to combine the three counts of first degree murder with the sexual assault charges against his daughters and do everything all at once. If you haven't finished your holiday shopping yet, don't panic. We've got a secret source for incredible original gifts, and that's Uncommon Goods. UncommonGoods.com has the absolute best gifts for everyone in your life. We're talking mom, dads, teens, in-laws, besties, your partner, and it's not just stuff you can find anywhere. Uncommon Goods has unique and creative gifts, often handmade by independent artists and makers. So skip the gifts that scream last minute and find something truly original at UncommonGoods.com. And I definitely have some personal favorites, one being the bubble tea kit that they have under their gifts tab. It is so cute. It comes with the straws, the mixes, all of that good stuff. And it's a fun activity for my daughter and I. So I am really excited to have that be one of the gifts that I'm getting this Christmas. And another one also includes food. There is a DIY mochi ice cream kit. Mochi is a big hit in my house. So it's just another thing when I buy gifts, I like to find stuff that we can all do together. So I think that is so great. And we get to have the sweet treat after. And the last thing is they also have the dark humor misfortune cookies. So instead of like the normal fortune cookies having, you know, the positive little message in it, these have 
a little bit of a darker turn. And they're hilarious. And these can be great for a white elephant gift or if you have someone in your life, which if you're a spookster, you probably do, who would enjoy these too. And I know my faves kind of have a theme going to them, but they have so much more. You can get art, you can get jewelry, things for your kitchen, your home, your bar. There's literally stuff for everybody. It's so great. And what's amazing is with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back a dollar to a nonprofit partner of your choice. And they have donated more than two and a half million dollars to date. Amazing. So to get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash spooked girls. That's uncommongoods.com slash spooked girls for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods. We're all out of the ordinary. Now, during this, the prosecution was seeking the death penalty for these crimes, as they fucking should, because literally he shot and killed his whole family. So, yeah, you're trash. And trial wouldn't happen until August of 2004. And like I said, and nobody was surprised, Scott was the star witness. And he was very emotional when he was on the stand. You know, he was very upset. He was crying. He had like a handkerchief, you know, and he was wiping his face. All that thing. It was like a lot of emotions, right? But when it came to Ernest, he had no emotions at all. Just basically like he just didn't give a fuck. He's just like, cool, I'm here. Just let me know what's going to happen kind of shit. Now, what was interesting was the fact that they brought some inmates that he was with on the stand. And this does happen every so often, especially in a case like Ernest's, because these inmates all said the same thing, that basically he would talk about these murders and pretty much say, like, admit that he would he had done it, you know, and all this stuff. So he's just like fucking psycho. And while there, he actually tried to get a hitman hired to kill Frankie. And when an inmate named James had, you know, heard about this, he's like, mm, I'm gonna go fucking rat on this guy's ass right now. So he told the officers there at the prison, you know, hey, this guy's trying to get a hitman. He's saying he's gonna kill his like granddaughter's dad, you know, all of that. And so they ended up doing a sting with this. So they actually got a DEA agent to go undercover and act as a potential person for hire, you know, for murder for hire. And Ernest went into great detail on what he wanted, including he wanted the hitman to leave a note that went over all of the details of the murder of the three ladies and that it was also a note to notify whoever found it that he would be dead because he planned on committing suicide. Interesting. Now, the defense tried to spin this and they tried to say that it's not that Ernest is a psycho killer and wants to murder everybody in his fucking life, apparently. It was that he thought that Frankie is the one who actually did this and was guilty and he wanted to avenge his family. Then you work with the police to get him arrested. Right, exactly. Or have an alibi that isn't the other person involved as your accomplice. Exactly, exactly. Basically, they're trying to pull shit out of their ass and it's not fucking happening. So, bye. 
But they did end up actually acquitting him for the sexual assault charges just because there sadly was not a lot to go on with that. So those kind of got swept away. Well, because the people... The victims had... Yeah. He had murdered them. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So obviously they couldn't be there to fucking testify because he murdered them. So he ended up getting the death penalty. He was found guilty of first degree murder. And another fun fact about this dude, after he was convicted and put on death row, he tried to claim Gene's life insurance money. You know, bro, do that. No, obviously, he didn't get fucking shit from that. But it's like, in what world? Sir, where are you going to spend your money on? Commissary? You're in prison for their murders, and they're going to see that because being murdered has to be reported to the life insurance company because they have to have the death certificate. Right? The fuck? They are not going to give you the fucking pay. They're not going to give thousands of dollars to the fucking murderer. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? If anything, I hope that Frankie was able to get that for the baby. Me too. Just saying. I'm sure that's what I'm it sure. Was. Yeah, I'm sure that's what ended up happening. But yeah, I was just like, the audacity of this fucking man. Are you kidding me? Right. Jesus. That was a first. Because it's like we hear these cases where it's like, obviously, they try to get the money after killing them. But it's like, they're not convicted. No one knows they did it yet. Yeah. Not on, <laughs> you know, literally death row. Exactly. Now, he obviously tried to go and appeal his sentence many times over the years. And just like he deserves, it was denied every time. So he he's still in there. He's still in there, so not to worry there. But kind of like the background, honestly, there's not, there really wasn't a lot deep details with this case. You you can read the court documents if you guys would like, but essentially it's, sadly, it's kind of what we've laid out here today for you guys. Mm-hmm. It's fucking horrible. And I know there's discussion about people blaming Scott because he's the one that drove him, but I'm like, really? He obviously planned this out and made up his mind. He could have driven his damn self. He would have found a way. And and you also have to like take into account that Scott was drunk. Yeah. And he wore him down for hours because Scott didn't say get asked once and say yes. It yeah. was hours and hours of drinking and wearing down. And, you know, I'm not saying Scott's an innocent party in this Mm-mm. whatsoever. No. But it's like, obviously... He was determined he was going to go kill his family. Right. And I think one of the good things that Scott did in that is like as soon as he realized that, you know, Mm -hmm. I I think there was probably like part of him was like, oh, I think my brother did this. But I don't know, like if you were really close with a sibling and your sibling did this, you might be. No, I don't want to believe this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, But also mm -hmm. it could be fear. Like, shit, he killed his wife and his two daughters. Like, what the fuck is he going to do to me if you can't prove this? Exactly. Yeah. So, oh my gosh, a very, very heartbreaking case. But on a positive note, it was said that obviously the baby, Madison, she dealt with, you know, dehydration and things like that. But she made a full recovery. She grew up with her dad. She she's thriving. She loves music, you know, things like that. So I am very glad that she was able to, you know, at least he spared the baby's life. Yes. 
and she's been able to grow up. And I know, like, obviously, there's so much trauma with all of this, but I really hope that her dad and the other family members that are around Madison, you know, she got the help she needed and the support she needed and things like that. Oh, for sure. Oh, it does help like a little bit, not like a ton, but the fact that she was nine months. Yeah. So like, though, it would be like flesh trauma, if that makes sense. The memory of it, like she might not actually have cognitive to be able to like pull actual memories. Well, right. But I still feel like, you know, that's a lot to unpack because it's like one, even though she can't remember it or anything like that, there, I'm assuming there probably was that survivor's guilt there, Mm -hmm. you know. Well, then it's think about like when she's sick or five or six and goes to preschool or kindergarten and is, yeah, why don't I have a mom? Yeah. The other kids have a mom. You have to ask that Frankie has to make a decision. Do I tell her that her mom? Yeah. Like, at what age do you tell your daughter, your, well, technically your grandpa killed your mom? Right. Oh, God. Yeah. I hope, and I hope, you know, him and any other family, like, they were able to get mm-hmm. the resources they need to, because I can't even fucking imagine as a parent trying to explain that to your child. Exactly. Especially because, like, you know, in these situations, like, those questions would come up when they are little because they don't understand, you know? hmm Oof. It's fucking horrible. But that is going to go ahead and wrap us up for today. Thank you guys for listening. As always, we love and appreciate you. And with that, we will go ahead and sign off and we will be back on Thursday. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.